Almost Happy New Year. Oh, why not? Happy New Year. <laughs> we're, we're loose here. We can do stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we uh, continue to move through verse by verse through the book of Genesis. If I could invite your attention to Genesis chapter 36, verse 15. And here's my resolution for today. You ready for this? To finish chapter 36. Because I would love, from the human standpoint, to start next week, New Year's, in chapter 37, which is the Joseph story. But before we get to the Joseph story, we've got to finish Jacob. God, through, as you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is forming a very special nation called the nation of Israel, through which the world will be blessed. And the book of Genesis takes so much pains in showing us where Jacob settled in his land. But what about his brother Esau? What uh, has become of Esau? And that's where chapter 36 kicks in. You have really an in-depth description of Jacob's descendants who became the Edomites. You sort of have to, to understand this chapter, you sort of have to put yourself in the position of Moses who put this material together and the original readers, they were coming out of Egyptian bondage and they were being opposed as they were making their way into the promised land, the nation of Israel, by various people groups like the Edomites. Why are the Edomites opposed to us? Why won't they let us pass way into the promised land? You don't really have much of an explanation on that unless you were to give yourself to the book of Genesis. So here is sort of a seven parts of chapter 36, just a lot of information genealogically about the Edomites. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, settled in what we call Edom, the Mount Seir area outside of the land of Israel. That's where they went. And so we've seen Esau's sons born in Canaan, then Esau's sons born after he left and went to Mount Seir. There was kind of this situation where the land of Canaan itself would not allow both people groups to coexist. The wealth of the two groups had become too great. And essentially what happened with all of the Canaanite city-states throughout Canaan at the time is there just wasn't enough territory for both of us. The same kind of thing happened with Abram and Lot in Genesis 13. They had to split from each other because the wealth of the two was too great and there really wasn't enough available real estate for both. The same sort of thing is happening here with Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants. Jacob's descendants remain in the land of Canaan. Esau's descendants went uh, down south, south of the Dead Sea and became the progenitors of this nation called Edom, who would become actually one of the perennial enemies of the nation of Israel. As Israel is fighting these battles against the Edomites, they would want a record somewhere of where did the Edomites come from. And Genesis 36 is really your historical record. So we've seen Esau's sons born in Canaan, Esau's sons born in Seir. Now we have Esau's descendants who started to function as chiefs. 
you have an introductory statement there in verse 15, and then you have the descendants of Eliphaz and his descendants as chiefs in Edom. You see how a governing structure is developing. Eliphaz is a descendant of Esau. So you have all of these sons um, described here, names that um, I'm not going to bother you too much with. I was in prayer for Ed Jones as he was reading through these. He did a great job, by the way. But here are these various descendants of Esau. And I will draw your attention, as we're going to move through this chapter somewhat quickly, to verse 16, second part of the verse. It says, These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. So the Bible wants you to understand very clearly who the promised land Canaan belongs to. It does not belong to the Edomites. It does not belong to the descendants of Esau. It belongs to Jacob and his descendants. There is a chunk of real estate that ultimately is going to stretch from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq from the Nile to the Euphrates that has been marked out for the Jewish people, the descendants of Jacob. And just keep that in mind as you watch the news and you hear over and over again, the Jews have no right to that land. It biblically is not true. That land does not belong to Edom. It belongs to the nation of Israel. Edom settled south of the Dead Sea, there's a mountain chain in that region called Mount Seir. And it goes on in verse 17, and it lists more sons of Ruel who became chiefs. Here are a whole bunch of other names, which I will let you read through on your own. I will draw your attention, though, to the conclusion in verse 17, second part of the verse. It says, these are the, these are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Edom. See the repetition of land of Edom? These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemoth. So over and over again, the Bible is saying, here's where Edom settled, not in the land of Israel. So don't invert the two. It's very common for people to invert the two. You probably know that Islam does this. Islam just kind of does a little uh, switcheroo between Isaac uh, and Ishmael. Uh, If you're a faithful reader to the Bible, you cannot do that because the Bible is clear on these topics and these subjects. The land that I've been describing, the promised land, belongs by way of divine decree to the Jewish nation. And uh, we continue on with the sons of Oholabama as chiefs. I know you're very interested in that name. I don't know much about the person. It does kind of sound like one of our former presidents, by the way, but we won't go there. But here are names coming from Oholabama. And then notice there's a conclusion, verse 18. I'll just draw your attention to the conclusion of that whole paragraph there in verse 19. It says, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. These are their chiefs. So apparently a governing structure arose in Edom involving chiefs. And the Bible wants you to understand where Edom came from. It came from the descendants of Esau. And then the outline continues where we have the descendants of Seir the Horite, verses 20 through 30. You have the sons of Seir, verses 20 and 21. There's a little introduction there. Verse 20, the sons are described. Second part of verse 20 into verse 21. And there is a conclusion. Now, you might be wondering who these Horites are. The Horites were the original inhabitants of the Mount Seir area before Edom's descendants 
left the promised land and entered that area. So they were the original inhabitants before Edom's descendants came in. They just went by this name, the the Horites. They were ultimately subjugated by Esau's descendants. Esau's descendants intermarried with them, and they became part of this nation called the nation of Edom. Now, you might be interested in this. The Horites, essentially what it means, are cave dwellers. I find this sort of interesting because I find a lot of people, I've run into people by way of conversation who say something like this, well, I don't believe the Bible. And I say, well, why not? Well, I believe in cavemen, they say. And I'm like saying, well, so what? The Bible talks about cave dwellers. These people were original cave dwellers. Uh, Man was not started off in a cave. Man, according to the Bible, was started off in a garden where he was put through a test. But as man fell, he moved away from the design that God had for him. And eventually people began living in caves. The Horites cave dwellers is would be an example. And so the biblical record allows for the archaeological evidence for cavemen. So I don't really see what the problem is between cavemen and the Bible. Uh, the two are actually compatible. But here is a list of these uh, Horites, their descendants. And once again, I'm not going to try to pronounce a lot of these names. You have a conclusion there at the end of verse 21. And if that weren't enough, we've got the the grandsons of the Horites. You find a description of them in verses 22 through 28. Now, let me draw your attention to one of these grandsons, these Horites. It's given there in verse 24, and this is sort of interesting. It says, these are the sons of Zebion, Ayah, if I'm pronouncing that right, Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. Now, why in the world would the Bible reveal a little piece of information like that? The Bible does this kind of thing because it wants us to understand that the people that put these records together, which eventually ended up in Moses' hands, were eyewitnesses to these things. Only an eyewitness could give you this kind of specific information about one of these grandsons of Seir who found hot springs in the wilderness. You'll see the same kind of geographical information given in the book of Genesis, chapter 13 and verse 10. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan and that it was well watered. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So every once in a while you're reading the Bible and it will throw in a little bit of information there and it will bring to your attention the fact that a person long after the fact could not have known this, these intricacies of geography. The Bible is put together ultimately through eyewitness testimony. These different records called Toledot in Hebrew, about 10 or 11 of them were, were passed down Faithfully through the generations, as we have studied, they will ultimately end up in the hands of Moses, who will compile all of the information that we call the book of Genesis. This is not a story time here. This is not uh, veggie tales. This is actual history that we're reading here, pieced together through eyewitness testimony. I bring that up because a lot of people will drive a wedge between faith and history. They'll say, well, we have the PhDs, we teach in the public schools, we'll handle the history, thank you. You people on Sunday, you just do the religious thing. 
making it sound like Christianity, Judaism is just built on a house of cards, is just kind of a wild leap into a dark chasm. Nothing could be further from the truth. God in his word never divides history from faith. The faith principles that we're reading about in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the faith principles that we read about in the life of Jesus Christ transpired in a real historical context. In fact, uh, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 in the so-called resurrection chapter says to his readers, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to 500 eyewitnesses. And then Paul says, don't take my word for it. Go talk to the 500 witnesses. Most of them are still alive. So you'll notice that what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he anchors faith, the resurrection, to actual, real history. That's what the Bible is doing for us. That's why it reveals these little intricacies. It doesn't want us to think that this is some kind of wild fiction that we're reading about. So you have these grandsons of Seir, and there, once again, are a lot of different Names, And then continuing with these Horites, these cave dwellers, the inhabitants of the land before Edom's descendants entered the Mount Seir area, they had their areas organized according to different chiefs. You have a little introductory comment there in verse 29. You have a description of the names of these various chiefs again. And then you have a conclusion there in verse 30. And then it switches away from the Horites back to the Edomites because they're sort of the conquering power that came in. And the Bible wants you to understand that when the Edomites came in and the nation of Edom started, they were organized not just as chiefs, but they brought in the subject of kings. By the time you get to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, by the time you get to uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, who were the first three kings in the nation of Israel reigning over the United Kingdom, the scripture wants us to understand that the concept of kings was already well established in other cultures and other countries. The Edomites, long before the nation of Israel got a king, were organized according to different kings. And let me draw your attention there to verse 31. It makes a very interesting statement about timing. And by the way, that's why I have entitled this sermon. I guess I was supposed to give you that at the beginning, wasn't I? Um, That's why we've entitled this sermon... Best rather than first. First is not always best. What you want in your life is not just to get something first. You want God's best. God's best for the nation of Israel was to be given kings. But his brother, Edom, got the concept of kings long before the nation of Israel received their concept of kings. And there's a very interesting statement as you look at verse 31 concerning timing. It says, now these, that's the Edomites, are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, verse 31, before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. It was always God's purpose to give the nation of Israel a king. It's just the Edomites got kings long before the nation of Israel did. How do we know it was always God's intention to give the nation of Israel a king or kings? It's something that God spoke all the way back to his dealings with Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah. God said all the way back in Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful 
and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. Same chapter, Genesis 17, verse 16. God says, I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings, it says, of peoples will come forth from her. Genesis uh, chapter 35 and verse 11. It says this, God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come forth from you and kings shall come forth from you. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, anticipates the time period when the nation of Israel would receive a king. It says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, you and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord God chooses. One from among your own countrymen. In other words, look at his birth certificate very carefully. One from your own countrymen you have set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your own country. Moreover, he shall not. Now watch this. This is so significant. The kings of Israel were under the law, not over the law. Very different than these uh, Gentile powers that had kings, but the king was like a god. The king could do whatever he wanted to do. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never go that way again. He shall not multiply wives for himself. I guess Solomon didn't get the memo on that one. Or his heart will turn away, nor shall he increase silver and gold for himself. In other words, he's not to use his office to get rich. I'm glad the Bible is not relevant to our situation. Verse 18. Now it shall come about that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, watch this now, he shall write out for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. In other words, if you want to become a king in the nation of Israel, you have to write out the Mosaic law, and the priests, plural, are going to look over the king's shoulder to make sure the king understands the law, that he's under the law and not over the law. It shall be with him that he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all The words of this law and these statutes and his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God always said Israel is going to have a king. But it's going to be different than the other nations. The king will be under the law not over the law. If you're looking for a fancy name for this, it's the famous uh, Rex Lex principle developed by Samuel Rutherford, a philosopher that was very instrumental on our founding fathers, where he said, in the United States of America, those that govern are under the law, they're not over the law. In other words, you should not look at your rulers as, well, they must have some kind of supernatural intelligence because they went to Harvard. And therefore, they adhere to a different set of rules than the rest of the people. The king in the United States of America has to be an American, and he has to be a servant of the people and not someone that lords authority over the people. And the people are not to look at the ruler as if he's some sort of deity or god. 
Because Samuel Rutherford developed this whole idea from Deuteronomy chapter 17. So there were many, many kings throughout the ancient Near East, but the people had a tendency to look at the king as if he was some sort of deity. The nation of Israel was distinct, where the king is just the king to be the servant. He is under the law, not over the law. That is something that is completely unique to the nation of Israel, the Rex Lex principle, meaning the law and the prince. But all of these passages anticipate a day when the nation of Israel, just like the Edomites, would eventually have a king. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36 says, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Now this is a prophecy about Israel going through discipline. And Moses made that prophecy before the nation of Israel even had a king. But it's a prediction, just like all of these other verses that I'm sharing, that the day would come in human history when Israel would have a king. So the concept of kings is well known long before Israel got her first king. And they picked a man named Saul. And that was a disaster. First of all, the kings are supposed to come from which tribe? Judah. Saul came from the wrong tribe. He was a Benjamite. Why did they pick Saul? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5 says that all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old. I mean, I hope when I grow old, people won't come up to me and say, you're old. (laughs) And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Hey, we want to be as a nation like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. We need a king. And the issue with God is not first, but it's best. It's waiting on the Lord for the right person. That's why your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, I think it's verse 22, says do not lay hands too quickly because you don't want to be the first out of the gate. You want God's best. Uh, The Edomites had kings. God gave the nation of Israel a king much later in time because God's agenda is not doing things first, but doing things the best way. Ultimately, Israel got the best king in the person of David because his lineage points to who? Jesus Christ the Messiah. But there's this great um, intensity amongst the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, to be just like the descendants of Esau. They have a king, and we want a king, and we want it now because we want to be like him, and we want to be like the rest of the nations. The nation of Israel ultimately got kings. Uh, The nation was divided into two uh, eventually after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom had 19 kings. The southern kingdom, Benjamin and Judah, had 20 kings. Up in the north, there wasn't one good king. Uh, How did God determine what king was good or what was bad? Was it their political party? Was it whether inflation was kept under control? No. The standard with God always went back to Deuteronomy 17, the Lex Rex principle. Is the king going to volitionally put himself under the authority of the law or the authority of God or not? And up north, not a single one of them wanted to adhere to the things of God. Down south, it was a little better. Benjamin and Judah, the north, would represent ten tribes. The south would represent two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. They had 20 kings. Eight of them were good, most of the time. (laughs) Eight of them would put themselves under the authority of God, but the rest of them would not. 
Eight of them would put themselves under the authority of Deuteronomy 17, the Lex Rex principle. Uh, the remaining ones would not. Take, take King Ahab as an example. King Ahab looked at a vineyard, as you read about in the king's books, and that vineyard happened to belong to a man named Naboth. And Ahab went to Naboth and said, sell me the vineyard, and Naboth said no. And Ahab went home and he sulked, and he had sort of a pity party. Why would he have a pity party? Because he was a king under the law, not over it. You cannot just take what you want as a king within the nation of Israel. Because the law of Moses is in favor of property being private and staying within the family. Now, the problem here wasn't so much Ahab, it's who he was married to. If you want to know the values of someone, figure out who they're sleeping with. And his wife's name was what? Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a Theonician. She was not reared under the Mosaic law. She came from a pagan fiefdom, and she started to mock Ahab, saying, well, what what kind of king are you? Where I come from, kings are deity. They just take what they want. And unfortunately, Ahab listened to Jezebel. He put himself over the law of Moses. He violated Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17. He took Naboth's vineyard and he murdered Naboth. And that becomes one of the stated reasons why God brought the Assyrians via discipline and scattered the northern tribes. It has to do with this issue of Lex Rex. Deuteronomy 17 is the king over the law or is the king under the law? Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian minister, influential in the thinking of America's founding fathers, says, no, in the United States of America... The kings are under the law, not over the law, going back to a biblical concept or a biblical principle. But in the north, you have 19 kings, all bad. In the south, you have 20 kings, eight are good. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum says something very interesting here, hence the title of our sermon. He says, there is a future history of Israel in which Israel will have kings. Here again is an example where those outside the covenant, like the Edomites, outside the Abrahamic covenant, initially seem to do better than those within the Abrahamic covenant. Esau seemed initially to do better than Jacob did particularly in this area of kings. Edom seemed initially to do better than Israel. Lot initially seemed to do better than Abraham. But over the course of time, who actually does better? It's the nation of Israel. So the issue with God is not first, but best. Now let me tell you, if you're a younger, youngish person, (laughs) you need to hear this. Because it's something I I needed to hear when I was your age. The whole culture is pushing you to do something first. Start your career first. Start uh, making mortgage payments on your house first. All your friends are. Get married first. Um, Pursue your career first. Uh, Have your children first. First, first, and the assumption of the culture is first is better. But that's not the way God works. God doesn't say rush first. He says best. Yeah, Edom got it, set of kings, but I tell you, nothing compared to what Israel got, where kings were actually put under the authority of God's law. 
And if they wouldn't go under the authority of God's law, they were deemed bad kings. There was, there was no such concept like that in Edom, although Edom got her kings long in advance. First is not necessarily the best. The nation of Israel got their kings last, but what they got was best. Because they got an authority structure placed over their kings, and then they got a very special king named David, whose lineage would lead to the salvation of the world. Edom had absolutely nothing like that, although she got her kings first. So as you're kind of on social media, by the way, um, social media is one of the most deceptive things because what everybody does on social media is they put their highlight film of the year on social media. They put their absolute best on social media. So you'll see all of the happy, smiling, successful faces. They're not going to put the difficulties that they've had on social media. It's their highlight film at the end of the year on social media, the high points in their lives. And you and you kind of look at all, all of these happy, smiley, successful people, people that you graduated with, people that you knew, and there's a tendency to compare your own life to what they have. Gee, they, they had something before me. What's wrong with me? Have I Have I missed God's will for my life? And sort of an attitude of, oh, I don't know, self-pity or despondency can overtake us. When you do that, just remember the ancient principle that they may have some things first, but that may not be the best. Just because you don't have what they have doesn't mean God is not going to give it to you. It's just God is waiting to give it to you at the right time. When your character is developed to a point where you can handle the blessing. First is not always best. The culture says first is best. God says no. Look at how he worked with the Edomites and how he worked with the Israelis on this issue of kings. So here come Edom's kings. First king all the way through an eighth king. And I'll just draw your attention there to king number four. Look at verse 35. Genesis chapter 36, verse 35. Then Husham died. Hadad, the son of Badad, who, look at this, defeated Midian in the field of Moab became king in his place, and the name of the city was Aveth. Notice at this particular king, this would be the fourth Edomite king. Once again, it reveals a little bit of history that nobody would know except an eyewitness. Verse 35 of this particular king, it doesn't say this about any of the other kings, but king number four, he actually defeated Midian in Moab. It's Identical to what God said of the leadership or the particular leader back in verse 24. It's identical to sort of the geographical intricacies back in Genesis 13 verse 10, which I read earlier. This was not put together by somebody just wanting a liver quiver for the day. These are actual historical accounts and historical facts from eyewitnesses. And these are sort of little nuggets that you pick up by having enough perseverance to read through and make it through some of the more difficult passages of the Bible. Now, I'm the same as you. I look at all these genealogies and I say, okay, uh, can we can we go to Romans now? Take take me to something familiar. Can we go to John's Gospel now? Can we get can we just get rid of Genesis 36? Not get rid of it, but we'll do a cursory reading of it because I really want to get to Joseph because I'm more familiar with Joseph. 
But what the Holy Spirit will do is he will take certain truths and he'll put them just beneath the surface. They're they're nuggets of gold. There, There are things that will enrich your life. But the Holy Spirit will position those just a little bit beneath the surface to reward the diligent. God is a rewarder of the diligent, is he not? Does not the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 say that? That's right. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, famous passage. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that must come to God, must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of the casual believer. Oop, doesn't say that. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. When you're in a section of the Bible that's a little bit less familiar, take heart in that. And go ahead and dig into it the way you would dig into any other section of the Bible because you're demonstrating diligence. You say to the Lord, I don't understand it all, Lord, but I I know there's something in here for me. I know the passage is dry, but God says, why don't you moisten it with the sweat of your brow? Dig into that. And there are certain nuggets in there that are just a little bit beneath the surface And as you sort of peel away these layers of the onion, you'll find that there's some life-transforming principles. That's how I feel about chapter 36. I've got to prepare you for this because there's some weird stuff coming in chapter 38. I would just assume skip chapter 38 and go right into chapter 39. Thank you very much. But there's a chapter in there that will just blow your mind. And unless you have a mindset of I'm going to persevere with diligence in this chapter because God wants to reward me with golden nuggets, you won't have the incentive to dig into it. The book of Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2 says, It is the glory of God. Watch this now. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it is the glory of kings... To search out a matter. God takes certain truths and he conceals them. He obscures them because he knows that only those that have a noble spirit are going to search those out through diligence and be rewarded. This, by the way, you you wonder why Jesus spoke in parables? This is why he did it. What what, what is a parable? It's It's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. So many of Christ's teachings were given in parables. In fact, as Jesus is offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel up through Matthew chapters 1 through 12, he doesn't use one parable. But once the nation of Israel moves into unbelief, he starts talking in parables. You're going to find eight parables in Matthew 13. One of the parables you probably know very well, the parable of the sower. And there are eight of these parables. If you understand them and put all eight together, you'll understand exactly what's happening in this interim, inter-Advent age before Israel accepts the offer of the kingdom in the tribulation period. Why, why, Why is it so hard for the gospel to get out and be understood and received by people? You'll have an explanation for it in Matthew 13. Why is it that within the life of the church you see good and evil arising simultaneously? You you have faithful churches and you have unfaithful churches. Why is that? The Matthew 13 parables will explain that to you. But you have to persevere a little bit in Matthew 13 because now Jesus is speaking in parabolic form. Why is he doing that? Because the nation of Israel just rejected his plain teachings. They rejected the Sermon on the Mount, for example. And the only people left at the feet of Christ were the disciples. The people that really wanted to be there. And Jesus began to speak in parabolic form 
to hide truth from the nation, but to unveil truth to the diligent disciple. Why was he hiding truth from the nation? Because to whom much is given, much is what? Much is required. It's very clear that the nation in the first century was going to reject him. And if he just kept speaking in plain language, the only thing that would do it was is it would increase their accountability on the day of judgment. And it was very clear that the leadership had no interest in enthroning Jesus. So out of mercy, he stopped talking to them in plain language. And he started talking truth to the disciples in parabolic form because he's concealing truth from the people who don't want it. And he's making truth a little bit more difficult to grasp with greater diligence to the disciples at his feet and the people that were interested in it. But I'm telling you, you persevere through Matthew 13 with those parables and you read it and you don't understand it. You, you go back and you read it again and you do your Bible study and you do your cross-referencing and you, you ask the Lord for wisdom. It is amazing what you're going to pick up in Matthew 13. You will understand everything that's happening today in terms of the course of this present age because that's how God has designed truth. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And that's why you pick up these little nuggets about eyewitnesses and things by persevering through these Edomite kings lists. By the way, do you realize that most Christians have never read the Bible? Christians have read books about the Bible. But very few Christians statistically have actually read the Bible from cover to cover. What a great time on the calendar for a New Year's resolution. Why not make the year 2024 the year that you read through the whole Bible? I didn't say understand everything in the Bible. Just read it through. There are countless... Bible reading programs that you can become involved in, which tell you how many chapters of which book you read in the morning and how many chapters of which New Testament book you read in the evening and how many Psalms and Proverbs I'm supposed to read. And by the time you get back to the end of 2024, you've got the whole Bible read. Inch by inch, life's a cinch, right? Yard by yard, life, life is hard. My, my daughter and myself, we have committed to reading through the entire Bible together, father and daughter. We don't cram it all into a year. <laughs> We're just barely getting out of the Old Testament. But every single night, we read one chapter together. Believe it or not, I don't preach a sermon to her. She reads a verse, I read a verse. She reads a verse, I read a verse. She'll say to me, what does that mean? And I say, I don't know, what do you think it means? And you do that every single night. We don't, it's not a long, hour-long procedure. It's something that you can do in 15 and 20 minutes, and then you take prayer requests from each other after the fact. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to look back and see how much we have read just trying to read together a chapter a night. Do you realize how few homes are doing that kind of thing? I'm not here to put people on a guilt trip. What I'm here to do is to challenge you in the new year to do something different. Your spouse, your children, your family, why not commit to just reading a chapter of the Bible a night together? Why why not make 2024 a year where you get on one of those well-known personal Bible reading programs and you commit to a process where by the end of this year you'll have the whole Bible read. We don't need more sermons about the Bible. What we need are teachers that teach the Bible. What we need in our homes is not more books, and they have their place, by the way, books, about the Bible. 
What we need is actual reading of the Bible consistently and diligently. And as you apply that diligence, you'll start to see things that you never saw before. Because God says that's how I've designed it. I've designed truth to be a little under the surface to reward the diligent because I'm a rewarder of the diligent. Let me draw your attention to this eighth king. This is very interesting. Verse 39, it says, Then Baal Hanan, the son of Akbar, died. And Hadar became the king in his place. And the name of his city was Paul, P-A-U. And this is interesting here. His wife's name was Mahetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mizab. This is interesting because... Of all of these Edomite kings, and there's eight of them, this is the only king where information about his about his wife is given. Now, why is that little factoid thrown in there? Showing us that whoever put this tablet together that eventually ended up in Moses' hand had firsthand knowledge of that particular king, the eighth king. And oh, by the way, let me give you some information about his wife. Just more evidence that this was put together through eyewitnesses, not someone pontificating centuries, as many people say, long after the events of the Bible transpired. Now, this eighth king is very interesting because he is the last king. Meaning that he is the king that was contemporary with Moses who compiled the book of Genesis for us. Because that particular king, king number eight, would give Moses trouble. The trouble is described in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. It's a description of what Moses went through as he was seeking to bring the nation of Israel through the Transjordan into Canaan so it could be conquered under Joshua. And there was a king there of Edom that tried to thwart his path. And it's very likely that this eighth king that Moses mentions here is the king he had trouble with. Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21, it says, From Kadesh, that's the southern area there in the land of Canaan, From Canish, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Sent him a letter. Sent him messengers. It was probably king number eight here. The one whose wife is described. Thus your brother Israel, because Jacob and Esau, their descendants from two brothers. Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all of the hardship that has befallen us. And that our fathers went out to Egypt and we stayed in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. And now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please, as Moses is speaking to king number eight of Edom, please let us pass through the land. We will not pass through the field or through the vineyard. We will not even drink water from your well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Seems like a very reasonable request to me. We're not going to bother anything. Just let us pass through on our destination into the land of Canaan. Edom, this is king number eight, however said to him, to Moses, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with a sword against you. Sounds like a reasonable guy, right? Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. 
But he, that's king number eight, said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Let me tell you something, folks. God kept a record of that. The Bible is very clear that if you bless Israel, you'll be blessed. If you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. God kept a record of that and marked the Edomites for destruction. And you say, well, pastor, do you have a good book that explains this? Yes, I do. It's the book of Obadiah, which was a prophet who was a prophet that prophesied much later in biblical history. And he prophesied over the destruction of Edom. And their destruction was related to the fact that they would not adhere to Israel's very, 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 very reasonable request to let Israel pass through. Now, if you are part of Moses' army, reading the book of Genesis, wouldn't that information in chapter 36 be helpful to you? In the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? Where did man come from? Where did marriage come from? Where did clothing come from? Where did religion come from? Where did salvation come from? Where did language come from? Where did government come from? All in the book of Genesis. Well, part of the package is where did the nations come from? Where did these Edomites come from that are causing us so much trouble? Genesis 36 is a record of that. And, of course, the book of Genesis doesn't just stop there. It tells you where the nation of Israel came from, that special nation that God raised up to be a blessing to the human race. You have here chapter 36, verses 40 through 43, moving away from Edom's kings to Edom's chiefs. There's all the chiefs. There will be a quiz on this at the end of this sermon. You have a conclusion, verse 43. And then you get to the second part of verse 43 into the very first verse of chapter 37, verse 1. And you have now the split between Jacob and Esau. Between Jacob and Israel in the land of Canaan by divine design, and the Edomites south of the Dead Sea in their territory. And once you leave chapter 36, verse 43, in the book of Genesis, you never hear from the Edomites again. They will drop off the story. And the whole focus will be Jacob's descendants, and a particular descendant of Jacob that God used in a strategic way named Joseph. And so the final division in the book of Genesis between the two groups is given there in the last verse of chapter 36 and the first verse of chapter 37. It says in chapter 36, verse 43, very last verse, Chief Magdael, chief of Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Where did these Edomites come from? Genesis 36 tells us. Watch this now. According to their habitations in the land of their possession. What was their land? Not Canaan, but the Mount Seir area. And now the Edomites leave the narrative or the story in the rest of the book of Genesis. And the whole focus is on Jacob's descendants, in particular a very special one named Joseph. And when you look at chapter 37, verse 1, it gives the contrast. Now... 
In other words, in contrast to the Edomites, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. That's where Jacob's descendants settled. That's their land by divine decree, according to the Abrahamic covenant. But we have one problem. The Canaanites that currently live in the land of Canaan are corrupting the chosen people. If you want to see a picture of the corruptive influence that Canaanite civilization was having on the Israelis, read chapter 38, the chapter I've already warned you about. So the issue becomes, how do you get the nation of Israel out of Canaan temporarily to be incubated in a very special place in Egypt called Goshen, free of Canaanite influence, and even free of Egyptian polytheistic influence. How do you get them out of Canaan into Egypt to be protected from this wicked Canaanite culture only so that they will go back into the land of Canaan under Joshua 400 years later and destroy the Canaanites and set up the land of Israel for the Israelis? How do you get them out of the land so that they can go back into the land? How do you get them out of the land so that they can go to Egypt to fulfill prophecy, Genesis 15, verse 13 and verse 16, that the nation will be out of their land for 400 years? How do you get them out of the land of Canaan into Egypt... So God can glorify himself in the Exodus event. The greatest redemptive work in human history, other than the cross of Jesus Christ itself, is the Exodus. That is a time period where God magnifies himself and glorifies himself as the Redeemer. But you can't bring the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage until you get them out of Canaan into Egyptian bondage. You see that? So how is the nation of Israel going to leave Canaan? The Edomites have left. They've gone to Mount Seir. How is the nation of Israel going to get out of Canaan into Egyptian bondage? Answer, Joseph. And it's going to be a bumpy ride, Joseph. There's going to be things happening in your life at the age of 17 that you won't understand. But just trust me. Keep uh, walking with me. Because we're eventually going to get to the end of the book of Genesis. I hope before the rapture. (laughs) And we're going to read Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 where Joseph will say to his brothers... What you meant for evil, God, what? Intended for good or meant for good. So it becomes a wonderful story about how God used a very young person to put into a place of strategic significance so that his ultimate plan of fulfilling prophecy and glorifying himself in the Exodus event could transpire And I'm very happy to say that we finished chapter 36. I didn't think we could. And uh, (laughs) we'll be starting chapter 37 next year. In the new year, studying the book, studying the Joseph's account. Can't get much better than that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for your sovereign hand in history. I do pray, Lord, that if anybody is here and they don't know you personally, that today will be the day of salvation for them. I pray that as the gospel is proclaimed, the finished death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his final words on the cross, it is finished. 
that people within the sound of my voice would understand that the gospel is not good advice to be followed. Rather, it's good news to be believed. You've set everything up for us, Father, as a gift. I pray that many, many people within the sound of my voice would receive that gift and be born again at a time when our world enters a brand new year. I can't think of a better time, quite frankly, to be born spiritually. Of course, the gospel is trusting in what Jesus did. That's another word for faith. Synonyms would be reliance, dependence. As a person comes under the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, I pray that they would place their personal trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and the safekeeping of their soul. We understand, Lord, that the gospel is not a matter of joining a church, walking an aisle, giving money, but it's a matter of privacy between the lost sinner and God where they come under this conviction and they place their trust exclusively in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us 2,000 years ago. I pray many, many people within the sound of my voice would be receiving, even as I speak, this wonderful offer of salvation. I pray, Lord, you'll be with us in the new year as we, your people, we seek to walk by faith. Bring the scriptures alive to us as we study the life of Joseph in the new year. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen.